We are in week five of our series and the final week of our series, Best Life Apps, and we've talked about application. We have all these cool phone apps. There's phone apps you can tune a guitar with. There's apps where you get directions with GPS. It's great. I've got this fishing app, Marine Ways, that shows me how deep the water is. I mean, it's just really amazing, all these apps. But as we've discovered over the last five weeks, that the greatest, most powerful apps you'll ever have in your life are biblical apps, principles taught in Scripture that can change your life. So i got a question. These Bible apps that are so powerful, can they change your life if you hear them? What about if you memorize them? What if you cry over them? You just touch to tears, you know? Then will it change your life? No. Only if you apply them. Only if you do them. It's not what you believe or hear, but actually what you do that makes all the difference. And uh, the verse we've used for every week in the series is James 1.22. I give you a different version every sermon. This is from The Voice. It's put this way. Put the word into action. If you think hearing is what matters most, you are going to find that you have been deceived. And people are deceived all the time. Because they go to a church, they hear a sermon, and they think, you know, somehow I've accomplished something spiritually. When actually, it's what you do that really matters. It's what you do. Doing really is believing. And we've downloaded some important apps. We downloaded the Confession app. We downloaded the Trust app. Uh, Last time together, we downloaded the Encouragement app. Well, this week, we're going to download the Forgiveness app. And to get us started... I want to talk about the two most recognized symbols in the world. Does anyone know what the second most recognized symbol in all the world is? What? Hashtag? It's probably growing. It's probably getting up there, but that's not what I'm looking for. What's that? Peace. It's not peace. It's not the cross. Huh? No, not the, the second most recognized symbol. I'm just, what? Pizza Hut. Not quite yet. No. But close, close, you're on the right track. No, it's not the peace symbol. The 60s were big, but not that big. What is he saying? McDonald's. See, that is a great guess. And that's growing too, but it's not number two. Number two is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is the second most recognized symbol in all of the world. And isn't that really amazing? Can you believe that? Why? I mean... Well, it's incredible leadership that they have and marketing principles. But here's Coke's mission statement. We want to have a Coke within arm's reach of everyone on the planet. And I mean, they're almost there. They really are. They're almost there. It's not too bad for sugar water. But Coke was invented in 1886, and it spread globally. And the reason I bring this up is this. Is Coke good for you? Uh, Will it change your life? (laughs) Well, I walked into that one, didn't I? This next one's going to, you're going to get me on this too. Can it transform lives or communities? I guess it could in a negative way. But in a positive way, could it? Not so much. You know what the, uh, the most recognized symbol on the planet is? And you guys did guess it. It is the number one most recognized symbol on the planet is the Christian cross. You know what it is. 
I mean, you've seen it on buildings, you've seen it on churches, on steeples and hospitals. We've all seen this, but here's the idea. Despite what your church background may or may not be, once we embrace the story behind that symbol, there's a practical and very helpful life app that's available to us and within arm's reach. And it's not the reserved property of the church or institutionalized religion. Uh, It really is for everyone. And it has a breakthrough life app once we understand the story behind the symbol. Let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a time in your life where someone has wronged you? Where someone has betrayed you? Where someone's just done something that you just didn't deserve that was just so bad? Does that fit anyone in the room? It fits us all, doesn't it? I mean, we could all come in here and tell stories and like, you wouldn't believe what this person did to me. They tried to destroy my reputation. They broke a relationship. Wouldn't you agree that those stories somehow shaped us to some degree? Not only did the betrayal shape us, but how we respond to that can shape us as well. And wouldn't you agree to this as well? That when it comes to like grudge holding, that grudge holding is kind of one of life's simple pleasures. It's kind of like chocolate, you know what I mean? Because it just, it kind of makes you, I don't know, it makes you feel good. I mean, you're vindicated because what they did was wrong. And one of the things that we do in terms of holding a grudge is we tend to fantasize what it could be like if we actually were able to tell that person off, right? You know, if I could give them a piece of my mind. We think about that. In fact, that fantasy kind of looks something like this. One day you're walking down the Oviedo Mall, and you're looking at your apps on your phone, so you're not really looking where you're walking, and you bump into somebody. And you look up, and lo and behold, you are eye to eye with that person that wronged you. And at that moment, you are given the public speaking abilities of John the Baptist. And I mean, you just start going off on that person. I mean, you go Charlie Sheen on them, you know. By the way, that's the first time in church history that Charlie Sheen and John the Baptist have been used together. We're just making history at East Point Church. But I mean, you go off on them and you're giving them what for. And a crowd of people begin surrounding and cheering you on. And every time you make a point, they're saying stuff like that. Booyah! And you tell them, girlfriend, and it just crescendos up. And the person starts to tear up and their lips start to quiver. And right before, right before they say, I'm sorry, you just spin your heels and walk away. And everybody just cheers. And isn't that an amazing moment? And you know, it does kind of feel good when you think about things like that. And and holding a grudge can become something that we just kind of cling to. And it almost comes like our friend where we're like, yes, you know, this vindicates me. This makes me feel so good. And a lot of the reasons we feel that way is because what they did was wrong. I mean, they can't just get away with it, right? I mean, let me ask you this. Would it be right for someone to completely betray you and, well, I'm a Christian, I can't do anything, I just need to walk away. And I mean, is that right for them to just completely, totally get away with that? That's not right. That's not justice. I mean, we're to love justice, the Bible teaches us, and that would not be right. So we kind of want to take it upon ourselves. But the fact is, holding a grudge, it really doesn't work. 
I mean, it may, might make you feel good for a little while, but over long term, it just doesn't happen. And some people make present day decisions based on something that happened years ago. And really, that's not a sign that it's working. Some of us toss and turn over something that happened a long time ago. And, and the problem with grudge holding is the longer you hold a grudge, that deeper that that grudge has a hold of you. The deeper you hold a grudge, the deeper the grudge is lodged within you. And what started out as someone else's problem, all of a sudden becomes your problem. You know, I love literary classics. Just love them. And my kids going up through school, they would come complain, oh, i got to read this book. i go, let me see what it is. I'm like, ooh, you know. I'd be envious because I'm like, they're like, oh, man, I had to read this whole thing. i go, golly, I wish I could read that because they're just great, the literary classics. And one of them I love is Moby Dick. And Moby Dick's just a, just a great, great book. And uh, in Moby Dick, Captain Ahab is consumed with a grudge. He's consumed with the revenge. It defines him. I mean, everything in his life is focused on revenge for the hate that he has for the sperm whale that sunk his ship. One of the wonderful things that Moby Dick teaches us is that Captain Ahab, because of his desire and passion for revenge, everything good in his life disappears. All the good relationships, everything disappears. And I love the symbolism. His revenge connects him to the whale like the harpoon connected him to the whale and ultimately destroyed him and everyone close to him. And here's the point. People carry grudges for decades. And I'm not saying that what that person did to you was not that big of a deal. But here's the point. If you keep carrying the grudge, the weight of that grudge is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you fail to deal with it, it'll take you down just like Captain Ahab. And good things in your life will begin to disappear. But here's the thing. God has a great plan for us. And sometimes we get chain linked to the past. But today, if you'll allow God to do this, he'll begin to release the grip of that grudge and break the chains of the past so that you can pursue what he has for you in the present and in the future. Paul has a verse that I love so much. I quote it in my house all the time. It's Philippians 3, second part of 13 and 14. Paul said this, and Paul had a lot of stuff in his past. Stephen being stoned. There were probably people in the church that hated Paul because of the things that he did. We don't think about that. We think of him as a hero. But he had to deal with that in his everyday life. And he wrote this. He said, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind And reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul was saying. If you constantly look in the rearview mirror, you're going to crash. If I'm driving and I always have my eye in the rearview mirror, it's not going to be good. Well, it's the same way in life. We don't actually forget. We remember and we learn, but we let go and we press forward towards the goal. And today we're going to start with the most recognized symbol of the world, the cross. And we're going to look at what that represents and how that can help us. And here's what I want you to learn today. That forgiveness works better than grudge holding. It really does. So let's start with the cross. What a lot of people know about the cross is absolutely wrong, historically speaking. 
Oftentimes, if you watch a movie, you'll see Jesus on a cross and he'll be 30 feet up in the air. That's not actually how that happened. The cross was not that large. He was not that high. There was a reason for it. They would nail him to the cross, then they would lift the cross up, and then it would fall down in a hole. It was a very, very excruciating, painful thing. But the cross, Jesus was probably about five or six feet off of the ground. And that was done for a very specific reason. Rome wanted you to be face to face and eye to eye with the person that was being crucified. It had a very psychologically great impact on you when you were just face to face with someone who was crucified. And the message Rome was trying to give was this. If you do not bow the knee to Rome and to our kingdom, this too shall be you. And it was powerful. And certainly everyone who grew up in that region would see that. Certainly Jesus as a young boy saw it. Mothers would hide their eyes as they would walk by. But it was a powerful, powerful message. Rome wanted you to get close. They wanted you to see it, to feel it, to hear it. This is what they knew. Once you experience someone dying on the cross, you would never forget it. It was a powerful, memorable, imprinted message to anyone who saw it. But the day that Jesus was crucified, the kingdom of Rome wasn't the only kingdom sending a message. No, there was a far greater kingdom with a far greater message, with far greater significance. And that, of course, was the kingdom of God. And the message the kingdom of God was sending is this. Come, get close, face to face, eye to eye with the Savior of the world. Come face to face, eye to eye, and see the Savior of the world who has been beaten and battered and spit upon and punched and is now crucified. And when you understand what's going on, When you come face to face, I bet you will never forget this. And what the Scriptures teach us when we come face to face and eye to eye with the story of the cross is this. Romans 3.23 For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And that's pretty bad news, isn't it? No one meets God's standard. But you read on, and Paul writes this later in his book he says but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners do you know why we all know why we're Christians we're in here together it's so we could experience God's forgiveness and I love this verse from first John the father has loved us so much that we are called children of God And we really are His children. Now I want you all to do a little exercise with me. Some of you are already closing your eyes. (laughs) But I want everyone in the room to just close your eyes right now. And I want you to imagine this. You are face to face with Jesus. The Savior of the world. And you know why He's there. And you're in front of Him. And he looks at you and he says, I'm so happy. I've taken away all your sin. You now meet God's glorious standard. Okay, open your eyes. If you were able to actually do that, do you think you would ever walk away and be the same? Let me tell you something. 
you have actually done that. You see, the cross is timeless. It's not just for 2,000 years ago. It reached way before that time, and it reaches way forward. In a real sense, you were there. We were all there. The cross isn't reserved just for one moment. The cross is personal. And what the cross means is God's grace has come to you. God's mercy is available to you. And God's forgiveness is extended to you. I don't care what you've done. Nothing trumps the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't matter what you've done. What he did covers anything that you could do. And what that means for you is that God looks at you, and when he looks, he says, forgiven, holy, righteous. You're a child. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're forgiven. And that's the power of the cross. And when we stay there, there's a shift that takes place in our hearts. God's grace and forgiveness is so overwhelming that it doesn't just come to us, but it comes to us and flows through us to others. We're not just recipients of God's grace and forgiveness, but we're distributors of God's grace and forgiveness. And here's the bottom line, and here's the sermon. And if you're a Christian, and if you've been forgiven, here's the deal. Forgiven people, forgive. Truly forgiven people. We live in a fallen world. Stuff's going to happen. People are going to betray you. It's going to come at you. You're going to be wronged. It's going to happen. But forgiven people forgive. The reason we forgive is as much for us as it is the person that we're forgiven because what happens with forgiveness is it begins to release the grip of the grudge. And forgiveness is very aggressive. It breaks the chain of the past and allows us to move forward. And your heavenly Father deeply desires this for you and for I. And so His grace and forgiveness don't just come to you, but they flow out of you. Not only does He want you to know this, but He wants you to live it. So He inspired this guy Paul to write five verses in Romans to let us know how to apply this forgiveness. And I don't want you to... Excuse me. I think I just ruined our clicker. Do you forgive me? Good. So here's Romans 12, 17. He says this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And I want you to focus on that second word, evil. This is important. See, Paul's not saying what they did to you wasn't a big deal. You know, you just need to get over it. It's not a big deal. No, what the Bible says is what they did to you was wrong. In fact, it was so wrong, he's calling it evil. So you're not denying the severity of what happened to you. You're dealing with it. But what Paul is saying here is there's a different pathway. If you understand how to release the grip of the grudge, you have to understand the journey. So he says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I want you to focus on that word peace. Because what Paul doesn't say here is that you need to live in partnership with everyone. See, if you're in business with someone and someone steals from you, this isn't an invitation to be a doormat. It's like, okay, you can keep doing this. I'll take another. What it means is you have to get some smart, godly people around you and you need to say, look, maybe you need to get out of this business partnership. Maybe you need to quit this job. 
but I want to do it in a way that is peaceful as possible. He goes on, verse 19, says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Based on this verse, whose job is it to avenge? It's very, very simple. When we don't do that, when we say, okay, I'm going to avenge this deal, whose job are we assuming? God's job. We're saying, no, 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 God, I got this. And we put our place in a position where God should be. Let me ask you this. How does that work out? It never works out right when we assume the position of God. See, the reason we don't forgive people oftentimes is we think we're going to let them off the hook. Somehow they might not have to answer for what they did. But what Paul is saying is, oh, they'll have to answer. Why don't you do your job and let God do his job? It's freeing. It's about trusting God. And then he goes on in verse 20, and I love this verse. It says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. To which many of us would say, now that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw hot coals on him, right? <laughs> right? What does that mean? Well, actually, Paul is quoting an Old Testament verse from Proverbs that says that if your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they are thirsty, give them water to drink. You will heap burning coals of shame on their heads, and the Lord will reward you. And there was this practice in ancient Egypt where people would repent when they were sorry for what they did. They would actually put coals on their head. I can't be 100% in this proverb that Solomon was referring to this practice, but this much I can be sure of. Paul definitely was saying that treating someone good when they have wronged you has a way of changing that person. When someone has done something bad and you respond with being kind and good to that person, it has the effect of changing their heart. And I don't know where I was, but I heard this this week, and it's the timeless truth. The best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn them into a friend. But the point is this. Forgiveness is aggressive. It's not passive. It's not like I'm letting people run all over me. It's breaking chains, moving forward. You do your part, and you let God avenge you. And then Paul sums it up this way. He says, okay, at the end of the day, you got two choices. Don't be overcome with evil, which means you have a choice to be overcome by evil. And the way that you're overcome by evil is by holding that grudge. It'll probably crush you emotionally. The other way is overcome evil with good. You don't want to be your own avenger. But as you get on with this journey, this life after forgiveness, the grudge begins to be released. And in the story of the cross, I want to point you to a process. And it's four, not easy, but four simple steps. And here they are. And you already see step one. It's to embrace God's forgiveness of you. When someone has wronged you, when, when you're tempted, I mean, it's not don't get angry. You should get angry. The Bible teaches us, yeah, it's okay to be angry, but you're not going to put yourself in the position of God. You're going to embrace God's forgiveness of you. And when you come to the cross and when you consider everything that God's done for you, it just puts you in a place where you're able to release that other person. Sometimes you, when you're mad, you just need to go to the cross and let that love overflow out of your hearts to another. 
Number two is forgiven people forgive. Luke 6.31 says this, Do to others as you would have them do to you. Number three, you let God avenge you. You don't avenge yourself. You don't play God. Let God be God and we do our part. And then lastly, the way that we overcome the evil is with good. You're going to overcome the evil that was done to you with good. All the while being inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit of the living God and His grace and love for you. And that's why forgiveness works and grudge holding doesn't. Now again, I realize the pushback. You'd probably say, Lenny, I could go up there and wreck your sermon right now with a story. And we probably all could. Well, let me close with a story. It's one that you've probably heard. It's a compelling true story that became a best-selling book called Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. She wrote Seabiscuit. And it's about this guy named Louis Samperini. I think they made a movie, didn't they? But Louis Samperini was a great American runner, and he was in the 1936 Olympics. In fact, he was roommates with Jesse Owens. He did so well at the 36 games that he was the odds-on favorite to win the gold in the 1940 games, which didn't happen because of World War II. And he found himself in the military, and one day he was flying on a rescue mission over the Pacific Ocean when the plane he was riding in crashed, killing everyone except Mr. Zamperini and, and two others. And they found themselves in a life raft for 47 days in a life raft, going over 2,000 miles over the Pacific Ocean. Sharks trying to get into the raft. It was just a horrific thing for any human being to go through. Then they were rescued, unfortunately not by Americans, but by Japanese troops. And what he would endure over the next two years would make the 47 days look like a cakewalk. There was a gentleman there named Matsuhiro Watanabe. And Matsuhiro Watanabe, when he saw Louis Samperini, he realized, I recognize this dude. Who is this guy? I know this American guy. And he realized, this is the great American runner. When he realized that he was an American hero, all of the rage that would normally be spread out over the entire prison camp was just focused on Louis Samperini. And the things that were done to him over the next two years are very, very hard to read. And I won't go into detail, but I'll give you a couple examples. One time he had another prisoner come and just punch him in the face and punch him in the face. and He would fall down, he would make him stand him up, and he would just punch him over and over. Another time a belt buckle was taken and a, a guard was instructed to hit him in the head. It cracked his skull over and over for hours and hours. And Louis Samperini endured this day after day after day. Well, it's easy to understand that his hatred for Matsuhiri Watanabe became great. And in fact, he decided one day, I'm going to kill him. And he planned to kill the leader of the prison camp. And he knew that he would be killed also, but he figured it was worth it. But, of course, revenge always takes you down as well as the person that you're exacting your revenge on. He was about to go through with his plan, and he saw an American plane fly over the prison camp. And it gave him hope. He said, you know, maybe if I just wait, maybe I'll be rescued. And they were rescued. Louis Zamperini came home, got out of the service, met a beautiful lady, got married. He started his life all over again. But while he may have been physically removed from the war, the war still raged within him. 
What was done to him caused a severe anger, caused him to turn to alcohol. The alcoholism devastated his marriage and his life spiraled downward. Then one night in 1949, his wife came up to him and said, Lewis, there's this young preacher that's going to be in L.A. His name's Billy Graham. And I want you to go listen to this man. He didn't want to go. He goes, I don't believe in God. But she encouraged him, as wives often do. And and he said, okay, I'm going, but I'm just going. And he went and he heard Billy Graham. And he said, okay, let's go home. So he went home. She goes, will you come and listen to him again one night? He goes, okay, I'll come and listen again one night. But as soon as he starts to pray, we're getting out of here. When Louis Samperini was in that raft and he thought he was going to die, one night when he was alone, he made a promise to God. He said, God, if you'll save me from this, I'll dedicate my whole life to you. Well, he'd kind of forgotten that promise because of all the horrible things that had happened to him in that war camp. And he kind of buried it deep somewhere and he forgot all about it. Next night when they went to see Billy Graham, sure enough, as Billy Graham began to pray, Lewis said, okay, we're out of here. And as he began walking towards the exit, something amazing happened. He remembered what he promised to God in that raft. And he turned and he walked all the way down the aisle, right in front of Billy Graham, where he gave his heart to Jesus. And ultimately, he wasn't going to to Billy Graham. Ultimately, where he went was where he became face to face with Jesus, the Savior of the world. And he began to experience forgiveness. And as he began to experience forgiveness, it changed his heart. Forgiveness began to flow out of his heart. And he realized this truth, that forgiven people forget. And so all that hatred he had towards the prison guards, he decided... He needed to let all that go. And so he decided he would make a trip because many of these people were war criminals now and they were in prison. So he went to Japan and he met all of his captors and one by one by one, he forgave them. And he told them of the grace that he had received. But there was one person that wasn't there and that was Matsuhiro Watanabe, the leader of the camp who had exacted so much pain on him. They said he had probably died or they just didn't know where he was. But he was one of the 40 most wanted men in the world. Well, one of the guys from 60 Minutes found him and he was captured. And he went and interviewed Louis Samperini and he asked him, he said, I'm going to face him. Would you write a letter to him? And this is what Louis Samperini wrote to Matsuhiro Watanabe. I want to read it to you. Mr. Matsuhiro Watanabe. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner, but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle just to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced a hate I had for you. Christ said to forgive your enemies and pray for them. 
As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed Harry Carey, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Signed, Louis Zamperini. Now please don't miss this. What I just read is the application of forgiveness. Forgiven people forgive. Let God avenge you and overcome evil with good. It actually works. And it's available to you because God loves you. He sent His Son and He wants you to break the grip of the grudge, break the chains of the past, so that you can move forward and achieve all that He has for you in your life. But sometimes we get confused And we keep looking backwards when we should look forward to the cross. Unforgiveness only hurts you. Holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping you're hurting the person that hurt you. It never works. Your heart wasn't designed for it. God did not create you to hold a grudge, but to extend forgiveness and love and mercy to all those around you. Pray with me. Father God, I know that in my life, Oftentimes, I've just had so much unforgiveness in my heart. Things that happened to me as a young person, Lord, are just, they're hard to let go of. But Lord, You have forgiven me. Lord, You've given me a future and a hope. Lord, and as a Christian, not only have You called me to receive forgiveness, but You've called me to extend it. Lord, as I extend that forgiveness that You've given me to the others who have hurt me, Lord, It releases me. It gives me a freedom. It gives me a lightness of heart. It gives me a peace and a joy that I cannot have if I'm holding that grudge, if I'm clinging to bitterness and unforgiveness. Lord, this is a biblical principle that you've made very clear in your word. But Lord, sometimes it's difficult to apply. So I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would soften hearts, that you would allow people to move in grace and extend grace to others so they can be free and press on towards the upward call of Christ in their life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.